open your Bibles with you this morning, if you would. First Peter, the book of First Peter, in the towards the end of your New Testament. What we're going to do for the next several weeks is look at different passages in the book of First Peter. So we'll go through the whole book. That's my plan anyway. So your assignment is to read the book every week. It's not that hard. You can do that. And, uh, and one of the things that I had to learn is that if you read through the whole book, you begin to see that there's something different than if you just pick and choose. Remember, every epistle is just a letter. Paul wrote a letter to the church, or in this instance, Peter wrote a letter to a church. And so it was intended to be read as a whole. And, and it's normally in response to a situation. So we'll talk about that and what situation is going on. So there's a little bit of history involved. And uh, amazingly, people are the same. Situations are the same. So even a 2,000-year-old text is written to you today. So we're going to go through that. First Peter, we'll look at the first 12 verses. And what you'll need to do is keep your Bibles open today, all right? Actually, what I really wanted to do was have Stella talk some more and see what she had to say. Stella was a little one. She's visiting from Texas, and she has a lot to say. So uh, I've kind of wanted to hear more about that. All right. As always, we pray. We ask that the God who is God work in our lives and in the lives of others. Be in prayer for Lila and Lita Hornaday in particular, and Sheila Finley and others who are struggling with some illness, and just our culture. Our culture is struggling. We are confused about almost everything. We've decided not to get along on anything. And those that are in elected positions of leadership sometimes confuse us. So let's pray that God can speak and guide and lead. Join me in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning again for your presence. We celebrate the fact that when we gather, you're with us. Your spirit moves in our midst. You teach us, comfort us, help us to think. Change us. Father, in this time of worship, we lift up our voices to you. We worship you and follow you. Indeed, you are the only thing that never changes the only thing worth following. Thank you, Father, for your character of love and grace, for your commitment to us, for your willingness to work with us and shape us and teach us. We thank you. And Father, we do thank you for this great nation. Flawed as it is, it's a wonderful place to live. We are safe and secure, well-fed, safe. Thank you. We pray, Father, for our nation's leaders, for those that are in elected positions of power, for those other legislators, those who make decisions that affect us. We pray for them that you would give them wisdom and discernment and grace. Help them to listen to facts and not just fiction and emotion. We pray that you would help them to make decisions that can benefit the whole rather than just small groups. Father, as always, we pray for those who minister to those that struggle. First responders, military personnel, doctors, nurses. For those people, Father, protect them. 
help them wherever they serve, give them comfort, and comfort their families. Father, we ask for mercy. We're a sinful people. Even at our best, we are tainted with flawed motives. Temptations pull us away from you. Forgive us, Father. And Lord, we pray today that you would teach us from your word. As we go through these old texts, help us to learn from the stories of other people. Help us to acknowledge the fact that we are all the same, regardless of culture, or time, or place, or race. Speak to us now, Father, from your word. We love you and you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wish I could say that if you're a Christian, go to church, tithe, all those things, that life will be easy. But it's not that way, is it? Peter was writing to people who were struggling because they were Christians. So I thought it'd be good if we could watch a video where a woman speaks of her experiences where she follows Jesus and it didn't get any easier. Debbie.
be involved with missions, and if not for the grace of God, none of that would be my life. So the most important thing I want to say is that the ridiculous grace of God is there and available for all of us, and my life is living proof of how amazing God's grace is and, and His free gift of grace to all. Kind of a bizarre story. A couple of key things out of the video. First, at the point of suicide, somehow God connected with somebody else that knew her and said, call that woman. And that happens. You know, it's not every day, but it's not that unusual. God works to reach people. Somebody obeyed led this woman to faith and saved her life, literally. So, before you go anywhere else, remember that. God works in people's lives. And that's one of the big takeaways. And, and that's going to be a recurring theme as Peter talks about how God works, in that God works and he's involved. His ridiculous grace is that grace that cannot be stopped, will not be stopped, and can change lives. The other thing is, the fact that you're Christian doesn't make your life easy. She got saved, got her life straightened out, diagnosed with cancer, surgeries, all those things. She was married, had children, good life. But anybody that's struggled with cancer knows there's nothing easy about living with cancer. And yet she perseveres in faith. Peter was talking to a group of Christians that were doing that very thing, persevering in their faith. A little bit of history. After Jesus' ascension, talking about 33, 34 AD, the church had a difficult time. It was never necessarily a government edict to persecute Christians, but it was open season on Christians. It was one of those laws that said, essentially, if you don't like Christians, you can beat them up if you want. And if you kill them, just don't tell anybody and it'll be all right. And it was very difficult in certain areas. And it was, it was a strange thing because in certain cities, people were very tolerant of this new faith. And in other cities, they couldn't tolerate it at all. Peter was writing to a group that were in a city where it just wasn't tolerated. And it was very difficult to be Christian. They were persecuted, beaten sometimes. The tax gatherer would take everything. And they could do that. And the government could oppress, and they would do that sometimes. And it was very miserable to be Christian, just because people were Christian. They thought following Jesus would make their lives better. But in their situation, following Jesus, regardless of salvation and all those kinds of things, made their lives harder. So because of this, and predictably, a lot of people started falling away, and people in the early church were beginning to walk away from faith, not because they no longer believed in Jesus, but just because it was just too hard. So Peter wrote in response, so on screen is an idea that we need to understand. Our faith comes as a result of God's power at work in our lives. One of the things Peter wanted those people to understand is that God works just like the woman in the video. She didn't know God loved her. She didn't know anything about it. And at the point of committing suicide, somehow God worked to get somebody to call her at the right time to stop her 
and lead her to faith. So Peter would say, God works. God is working in your life even as you struggle and suffer. He said to those early Christians. So let's talk a little bit about this. In 1 Peter chapter 1, I'll read the first five verses and then we'll talk about them. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So the question was, why is it we're Christian and God's not doing anything? Fair question. If you watch TV preachers, you are taught oftentimes that if you do everything right, God will protect you. The phrase is, he will build a hedge around you. And there are some Old Testament references of phrases like that. And sometimes people get the idea that if you're Christian, everything will be wonderful. And it's just not true. Yes, you're still saved. Yes, there is reason for rejoicing, but your circumstances on this earth do not necessarily improve because you're Christian. But that doesn't mean that there's no hope, and it surely doesn't mean that God isn't working. These early Christians were struggling, and they were beginning to wonder whether or not God was working because it wasn't working for them. So what Peter was going to do is try to shift their attention from their own suffering to God's character. Your situations change. Some days are good, some days are bad. If you're like me, there are years of your life where things are really good. And then there may be years of your life where they're really not very good. You know, things at home aren't that much fun, and things at work aren't any good, and you don't feel very good, and you've got some health challenges, you lose some family members. And folks, that's life. Going to church doesn't change any of that struggles, oppression, whatever. All those things are normal experiences of life. And so sometimes it's easy to begin to doubt, well, wait a minute. The preacher said, if I follow Jesus, he'll take care of me, and I don't feel it. So what we have to do is ask that question, and it's fair, and then wonder, well, what are we supposed to do? So Peter says, well, this is what you do. You start paying attention to the God who is working. So what he did was he began to teach them that there was a God out there who took this form of Father and Son and Holy Spirit and he referenced each of those in that passage we've just read. And people were taught what you have to do in this life is focus on God even in the hard times. It came to be called the Trinitarian experience, not so much in the early church, but later on as scholars began to work, the Christians in churches around the world, and particularly in early Europe, they began to call it the Trinitarian experience. And that was the idea that God was at work even before you were saved. So on screen are some of the ideas that come from this Trinitarian experience, and they come right out of this passage. So you can see that first of all, he talks about this thing about God 
people are chosen according to God's foreknowledge, and that's in verses 1 and 2. Now, some people think, incorrectly, that God chooses some people to be saved and chooses other people to be not saved, and that's an incorrect understanding of Scripture. God chooses everyone. In other words, he chooses to love people. He chooses to offer people the chance of salvation. And in his foreknowledge, he knows what's going to happen. But that doesn't mean he doesn't make it happen. He chooses that everybody will be saved. In other words, he gives everybody a chance to be saved. He gives everybody a chance to receive Jesus as Savior. He gives a chance through the Holy Spirit at work for them to be saved and have this life that is in Christ. And he knows who's going to respond. But that doesn't mean control. The fact that you understand what's going to happen doesn't mean you're controlling it. I was reminded of this yesterday. I was out in the woods with my son-in-law and grandkids and, and, and the women. And we were all building this deer stand. And what that meant is me and my son-in-law and my grandson were trying to build something and they were sitting in the buggy out of the bugs and telling us what to do to hurry up because they were tired. And so that's the way that works. And so my son-in-law was working and he's got a seven-year-old son, Henry, great kid, and I knew what was going to happen. He was going to be underneath our feet the whole time, and he was. And he was going to be in the way, chattering as he does the whole time, and he was. So somewhere along the way, my son-in-law had the great idea of giving this seven-year-old boy an axe and pointed him to a tree and said, cut this tree down. And then he said to me, Kevin, this way we won't have to worry about him for a while. I thought, oh my gosh. Well, anyway, 20 minutes later, my grandson, seven years old, chopped this tree down. And I don't know how he did it. I mean, it, was, it wasn't a great big tree, but it was a tree as big as his leg. You know, it was one of those things like that. And he cut it down with an axe. He's seven years old. So anyway, I knew what was going to happen when that event started. I knew that Henry was going to be in the way, and I knew that there was going to be drama, and there was. That didn't mean I caused the drama, but I knew what was going to happen. I saw the situation, and I was able to discern what was going to happen. But I didn't make Henry do anything. So understand God's foreknowledge like that. God understands the future. He looks at the situation, he assesses you, and he knows whether or not you will respond in faith. But that doesn't mean... He's determined that you respond in faith. And I spend a little time there just because sometimes people get the idea that some people are Christians because God wants them to be Christian and other people aren't Christian because God doesn't want them and nothing could be further from the truth. So there is this idea of God's chosen action. He chooses everybody to be saved. He gives people the gifts of faith, but they must choose to respond. Now, the reason Peter brings that up is because he's reminding him, listen, you're not Christian because you're better than anybody else. You're a Christian because God has saved you. You received the gift of faith from God because he gave it to you. You felt the need for God because the Holy Spirit was at work in your life. And see, for those people who were thinking, well, God doesn't care about me or he would fix things, they were looking at things incorrectly. He was trying to say, listen, the only reason you're a Christian, the only reason you have the hope that is within you, this salvation, the only reason is because God has already worked in your life. So don't think for a minute that God isn't working. To those early Christians, you're Christian. You're Christian because God has worked in your life. 
your Christian because the Holy Spirit has worked to teach you. So in verses 1 and 2, he talks about God's choosing them for faith and for knowledge. And then look at verse 2 again. Talk about sanctification. I know these are religious terms and uh, you may not be familiar with them. But in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So the sanctifying work, often use the term sanctification. That's an old preacher term. Some of you that grew up in churches long ago grew up hearing about sanctification often. Preachers don't use that term too much anymore because no one seems to know what it means. Sanctification is merely the process of God changing you. God uses your efforts at faith. He uses preachers. He uses Sunday school teachers. He uses scripture passages. He uses music. He uses all sorts of things to bring about changes in your life. And that's sanctification. So he's talking in verse 2 about how they are changing and they're different than they used to be. So there was a way that they lived before Christ and then they were saved and then they began to grow in the faith and their attitudes began to change and their lifestyles began to change and they began to clean up some of the things in their life that were dragging them down. And Paul, Peter said, the reason for this is because you are being sanctified. You see what he's doing? He's saying, listen, I know your life is hard, but God is still working. So he was essentially saying, listen, look at your life before and after. Before you were Christian, what were you doing? What were you doing? Before we were, you were Christian, how did you feel about your place in the world? Before you were Christian, how did you relate to each other? Was your marriage good? Were your kids good? Did you have this hope that was within you? Did you live with a burden of guilt? He says, if you're different now, it's because the Holy Spirit is working in you, his sanctifying power. See, remember, the situation was they for, were thinking that maybe God didn't love them anymore. You know, we, we tend to be very, we're kind of selfish. We tend to think that everything in our life is because of us and all those kinds of things. And, you know, little kids do this. If mom and dad are having problems, and we know this, if mom and dad are having problems, a lot of times young children will think it's their fault that mom and dad are having problems, and they have to learn it's not that way. What we have to learn sometimes that in our lives, if there are things going on, it's, it might be God working. Now, we bring things on ourselves, of course, but we must always be reminded that God is at work, even if you can't see it. And sometimes you simply can't see God at work because of your perspective. You're so focused on your suffering or on a particular thing in life that you can't see anything else. So he's saying here, so you're a Christian because God has worked. You're different as a Christian because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 2, still that passage, he says this. That you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. And again, that's one of those things that throws people off. These people grew up with a sacrificial system. In other words... In their day and culture, all religions practiced some kind of sacrifice. And they would slaughter animals or give particular offerings and that was put on an altar. And in almost all instances, there was some kind of animal killed and the blood was sprinkled on that altar. And they would say that the blood covered those sins. And that was the Old Testament system too. And then fast forward to the crucifixion of Jesus. His shed blood on the cross became 
the sacrifice for our sins. So he uses this understanding that Jesus' blood was shed. And because of that, because of what God did through Jesus, they were saved. You see, so what he's talking, and he's talking to people that were beginning to even doubt the value of their salvation because salvation made their lives hard. He's saying, now listen, look at all the things you've received because of this sprinkling of salvation. All the things that have come into your life, a sense of God's presence, the positive changes in you and in your family, the sense that when you die, you don't have to worry about hell. And that was a thing in those days. And, you know, and even today, we worry about what happens when I die. We can live with a conviction that God's going to take care of us. Why? Because of Jesus shed blood on the cross. You see how that works. And so it's, it's a very simple explanation. And Peter's trying to remind people that God hasn't forgotten them. That he understands they're struggling. And that it's still worshipped, worthy, and it, it's worth it to follow Jesus because Jesus brings so much good into your life. And it, it doesn't make it, it doesn't make your suffering go away, but it helps you to understand. I am always amazed when I make a visit to someone who is dying. And this happens literally all the time. And almost any preacher will tell you the same. That people at the point of death who are Christian will say, I'm going to be all right. Almost always. In those instances where I've been with people who were dying that were not Christian, they do not say that normally. Sometimes they will, but not usually. There is real fear sometimes and discomfort because of the unknown. For those who follow Jesus, we don't know what happens and we don't know the timeline, but we know that when we die, God will take care of us. No matter what happens, God will take care of us into death, whatever that means. I was talking to Lita Hornaday just yesterday. And you know Lita, and she's struggling with cancer. She's struggled with cancer for 20 years. And I'm sure she wouldn't mind me telling this. And she said, you know, I'm not really worried about dying. God's going to take care of me. It's going to be fine. But, but I'm kind of worried about that whole process. Something we can all relate to. But there it was, unsolicited. Death may come soon. And I'll be all right. Matter of fact, as Lita is. See, that's because she's Christian. When you follow Jesus, you receive something good. A basis for this life. Forgiveness. That's one of the things that the sprinkling of blood has to do with. And this idea that in Christ, even in death, there is comfort and hope. On screen is a passage of scripture. Those who are born again are protected by the power of God through faith. You can see that in verses 3 and 5. So people that are Christian are protected by God. And that doesn't mean that this life is safe. It means that even in suffering, God is with you. Even when you're struggling with your marriage, God is with you. Even when you make mistakes in this life, God is with you. Even when you receive that dreaded diagnosis from the doctor, God is with you. And even at the point of death and loss, God is with you. So Peter deals with people that are struggling. And it is not easy. And he says there's a reason to go on. God is with you and at work.
And then he brings up this idea in a few more passages that this salvation we have can be an eternal source of joy and wonder. Follow along with me if you would in verses 6 through 9. Still in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 through 9. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So the outcome is salvation. That's the goal. Because one of the truths of life is we all die, we all will face God, and we all face eternity. And one thing we can count on, and we don't have to understand all the details of the timelines, one thing we can count on, in Christ, we will be fine into eternity. Whatever that means, the Old Testament people use languages like streets of gold and banqueting tables and all those kinds of things, meant to teach us that in eternity, God will take care of his own. And so, there is this one thing that can be with us because regardless of this life, we know God will be with us. And so, he uses that to teach us. Being Christian was not a guarantee of being happy, but it was a guarantee that God was with you, even in the worst of circumstances. So, think of it like this. If God is with me and gives me hope, and a possibility of joy in the worst of circumstances, my death, then maybe this life is worth it. Which is exactly what he's talking about. So on screen, some things about how faith can work in our distress. So he says here, suffering can prove and refine your faith. And here's how this works. Because sometimes we wonder, but you know that in, when you refine metals, you use fire and it burns away the slag and all those kinds of things. That's the imagery. And the reason he used that imagery was everybody understood this. In small towns, agrarian society, you had to have your metal worked and you would go to the blacksmith and they would do that. And you would watch them. So everybody understood that the metal that they had, the ore would be built and, and, and poured and they would scrape off the slag and the metal would be purer and stronger and they understood that. And everybody knew this stuff. So they used imagery that people would understand. So Peter said, listen, here's the way it is. Your faith initially has some stuff in it. You're inconsistent. You're over-emotional. Maybe you just don't know what to believe and you have some bad beliefs and things like that. But as you go through suffering and as you go through hard times, God uses those things to refine your faith. In other words... He teaches you the things that are worth believing and helps you to get rid of the dross, right? So, take for an example, if you have this belief that if you're a good Christian, everything will be easy. Well, guess what happens when you suffer, when cancer comes or you go through a divorce or, or something happens miserable and you can't think of anything you did to bring it on yourself. No bad decisions, no sin, anything like that. You're forced to understand, okay, well maybe I was wrong. I'm still Christian. I'm still saved. God is still working. But that idea that I had has to be gotten rid of. 
In fact, is that's one of the things that Christian growth is. Learning to get rid of false teachings and ideas that you had that would work. Maybe somebody along the way has taught you the idea that if you're a good Christian, things will be easy. They were wrong. And in your suffering, you begin to learn that. Maybe you've learned somewhere that when you feel guilty, you need to give more money to the church or something like that. And then you give more money to the church and nothing changes. And you begin to learn that that doesn't do it either. Your offerings do not cleanse you of your sin. Only a confession of your heart to God cleanses you of sin. Offerings are fine. They are an expression of your faith. They can help others, but they don't save you. They don't wash away your sin. And see, a lot of those false teachings and things that are in our lives are burned away by suffering. And our faith is made better. That's that process of sanctification where God teaches you. So, here's that process. You have faith because God gave you faith. God chose you for faith. He gave you faith. You received it and and received Jesus as Savior. You're saved. You have this conviction that in death, God is with you. And then you begin to build on that. And you go through hard times of suffering. And they will come to everybody. And you hang on to your faith. And over years and decades, the false teachings and crazy ideas that people have picked up and taught you will be burned away. That's what is the value of suffering. And then look in verses 8 and 9, if you would. Still in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So the goal, of course, is to follow Jesus, regardless of the situation. And this is where it gets hard. It's easy to follow God when you get your way, right? When you pray to God and he answers your prayers and you get what you want, well, it feels good to go to church. Because, yeah, I prayed and look what happened. Here I am. And we've all experienced that. But when you don't get what you want, when the person you prayed for dies, when you pray for a good diagnosis and you don't get it, or you pray for this new job and it's given to somebody else, or whatever. When you don't get what you want, it's easy to doubt God. And Peter's saying you can't do that. The fact that you don't get what you want, that's just one of those ideas that you have to get rid of. Following Jesus doesn't mean you get what you want. Following Jesus means ultimately God rewards you with eternity. And that's what it is. And sometimes God will bless you in this life and you'll get your prayers answered the way you want. And sometimes he doesn't. And that doesn't mean he doesn't love you or anything. It just means he felt like this time you needed something different. You've seen this with your kids and grandkids. You love them. You want to give them everything they want, but you know better. A child who receives everything they want is spoiled and weak. And God knows that. He makes us stronger by saying no. Sometimes because he knows that what you want will hurt you. It's not good for you. So he says no at times. And that's all right. Doesn't mean he doesn't love you. Peter teaches here that suffering can be a value. And he's not saying suffering is a good thing. That's silly. 
But it does mean that God can use it to bring good into your life. And this is one of the things he wants us to learn. So here's the value here. There's our, uh, a couple things to walk away with. Number one, there is reason to follow God even in hard times. Because if you follow God in hard times and you hold on to your faith, people see that. If you continue to go, to go to church and you continue to follow Jesus and talk about him and pray, and people see that even though hard times are there, they'll see that. So there's a value there. There is a strong witness. And second, regardless of suffering, there can be a source of peace because God is with you. God doesn't give you everything you want. He doesn't answer every prayer that you ask for in the way that you want it. But it doesn't mean he doesn't love you. He loves you anyway. Just like a parent who sometimes says, no. God loves you. Nothing has changed. Even in the circumstances of life, God is still there working. And just like you didn't know God was working in your life before you were Christian, God is working now in a way that you cannot understand. And I've seen this in my life and in the lives of others over the years. God is at work. And you don't necessarily know it. And then something happened you go, oh, God was working. And you can look back and sometimes you can see that years ago, God did this to bring you here. And you can never know that until after the fact. This is what Peter is teaching those early Christians. Follow Jesus. Trust God. Regardless of circumstances. And he will be with you. And he will bless you. There's going to be more like this from the book of 1 Peter. It's not all this serious and this heavy. But this was written to a group of people who were struggling. And they were, they were living hard lives. And God lifted them up. And made them strong through this. Nate's going to come and lead us in a hymn of invitation. The invitation is always the same. Follow Jesus. Make the decisions that will allow Jesus to work in your life. Trust that God is at work even when you can't sense it. And allow him to change you. Why don't you stand with me and Nate leads us. Make those decisions. And if you'd like to make some kind of decision in public, you can if you'll come forward. Nate.
Terry's going to come and lead us in a closing prayer. The best advice is simple. Follow Jesus no matter what. Terry? Will you pray with me? As we leave this place, maybe we can tell somebody a story. Maybe we can tell them the story of Jesus. And maybe we might even speak. Amen.